<laughs> I don't even know how to begin this, except for to say I don't know how to begin this, but I'm beginning it, so it's beginning. Uh, did you want to banter a little? Or <laughs> you sounds said like that something a toddler would say. Yeah, something is so rote now for us. Um. Yeah, it's fine. We'll just do, do plow through it. <laughs> I know you were having your own little ice age moment not too long ago. Um, I am. I had something that I was going to say about my middle name thing, but I don't remember it anymore. Uh, oh, that's disappointing. It is too bad. It's too bad. Uh, so I guess I'm just. Ryan, I'm just Ryan McKenna. I'm Harland, Nashville every night, Grant. Oh, well. And we are the Doddlers, who are very patterned at this point in our introductions. Because this is the Doddlers <laughs> Philosophy Podcast. What are we going to talk about today? <laughs> Tonight. <laughs> uh, okay, so we are uh, we're here. I feel like we have been doing a lot of little shorts, and we haven't done some biggins in a while. We did a the the last like long one was wasn't even like our normal Doddlers one. Is that right, or am I wrong about all that? No, no. It was the last uh, long one was regular. Yeah, it was regular. Hofstetter. Regular. Oh, yeah, okay, never mind. So this time we're going to talk about something that I don't know if people will know what I'm talking about right off the bat, but then hopefully after a while, after this episode, they'll have a better sense. But uh, we're talking about the Pleistocene. The what? The <laughs> Gesundheit? <laughs> what? We don't know what the hell you're talking about. You know, the Pleistocene. Oh. It sounds like some kind of era or eon or something. Well, you would be close. The Pleistocene is a period of time that geologists talk about or have sectioned off to cover, you know, certain events, geological events that have occurred. And my... My interest always in it has been, you know, the ecosystems of the Pleistocene. 
And I guess my main, main motivation to bring it onto the podcast here is that it's something that a lot of relatively you know, popular psychologists like Stephen Pinker or whatever like to mention kind of briefly while they then go into all the experimental psychology stuff that they want to talk about. Because the Pleistocene is sort of the one real nod to geology that people who care about humans and interesting human things it's kind of like the one nod they do. Okay. So psychologists or, you know, so when we want to talk about, well, especially when you think about evolution and psychology or as some people call it evolutionary psychology, but I don't even know what the state of that situation is anymore. People like to say, well, back in the Pleistocene, you know, we blah, blah, blah. And this is why we today are blah, 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 or something like that. And, uh, in addition, I guess if you really wanted to say, what the hell is the Pleistocene? You could just say, well, it's the ice age, you know, it's the caveman days, uh, for lack of, of better lack of all of any better words, but there's a lot more better words so we can use them like the Pleistocene. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking, yeah, that's helpful. Okay. Yeah. The caveman days and the ice age, and so is there like woolly mammoths walking around? Yeah, saber tooth tigers out there. Yeah, exactly. We're running scared, like you know, it's just like it is in Hollywood. But you know, coming from my angle, as you can imagine already, that was like a long time ago for somebody like me who's really into this stuff. You know what I mean? So it's harder because of the curse of knowledge or whatever you want to call it. For me to remember, oh, yeah, people need to know Ice Age. They need to know Caveman. Yeah, well, I can help you with the curse of knowledge about this because I don't suffer from that. (laughs) No, you don't. I don't know if this would be the right time, but a couple of questions that I would have in general, based on what you've said so far, would just be throw some years ago at us. Oh, I will. (laughs) And then you mentioned that these... Time periods are marked off by geologic events. I don't know if you plan to talk about which event started and ended the Pleistocene, or is it just is the Ice Age the answer to that? Or, uh, yeah, for the most part, and Caveman, <laughs> you know, okay. those are two events, I guess you could say. Um, but uh, I guess the idea is you wanted to know years ago kind of thing. So it's, you know, these things always come with plus and minus, and I always see very different dates depending on whatever you're encountering. Let's just say we're talking about 2 million years ago till, oh, I don't know, 18,000 years ago. And that's the general duration of the Pleistocene. That's not very long ago. <laughs> nice. And it sounds Good like answer. a really huge chunk. Two million years ago to 18,000? That's correct, sir. This sounds like we're on the fingernail or whatever now then. Yeah, for sure. Because two million to 18,000 is a big difference. It is a big difference. A lot happens in that amount of time. But really what it is... 
you could potentially say that the Pleistocene is sort of the onset of a new ice age. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to quickly say, you know, when we talk about two million years ago and all that kind of stuff, we're talking about geological time. And so, for instance, we often like to say that the Earth is 4.5 or 4.6 billion years old and all that. And this is something that we arrive at using physics. And I suppose for many people, it's kind of boring, but it's like, you know, physics, statistics, and a lot of math to try and understand, um, you know, uh, how old the Earth is based on our understanding of things like isotopes and radioactive decay. And um, now that I am at this point, I'm like, probably shouldn't mention those things. Because, I mean, damn, what a rabbit hole that could be. But essentially, um, we arrive at this estimate through, like, you know, those basic factors and the things that we've learned about radioactive decay. And now there are other ways to date things that people have been clever enough to come up with. Um, but I think this is the primary one. And oddly enough, we kind of use meteorites instead of we tend to, you know, trust meteorites more than we do the oldest rocks and things like that that we can find. Um, because meteorites, well, Earth itself is always recycling rocks. And um, many, many rocks may not be available to us. And so meteorites, which fall from the from the um solar system floating out there onto the planet can, you know, essentially represent kind of untouched, if you will, uh, 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 you know, formations of material that essentially go back to this, you know, the formation of the solar system. I won't get into those details because that you could probably debate as well, but there is an argument using meteorites instead of rocks on earth. And there's many, 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 uh, attempts to date things like the age of the earth, for instance, using meteorites, but you can also use rocks because not all rocks are, we're not trying to get ages that old all the time. And so you can use lots of different other kinds of isotopes and isotopes are essentially, um, the kind of, uh, it's an, like an atom, if you will, that has an additional number of neutrons rather than, you know, the same number of neutrons as the number of protons in the nucleus of an atom. Um, and so that's the difference. And so, so usually it's, it's that there's more neutrons. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it comes down to that and, and uh, other things. So there's stable and unstable isotopes. And some of those unstable isotopes decay spontaneously, more or less, but we can still kind of, you know, get an estimate of um, how what the rate of decay is. Um, so anyway, moving on from that, we use that today to get a much finer, more satisfactory way of getting an age on things. But in general, we've always used bigger ways of talking about things just to kind of slot things and categorize and put things in bins and all that. And it's a hierarchical structure that we've created. And so the largest structure outside of just simply the age of the earth would be eons. And then following that, we've got eras and then periods and then epochs. And then I guess you could say stages or ages, but I think stages is probably better. 
because ages is used informally and formally in lots of different ways. But these other ones are kind of more formal. And you can have subs in between, sub periods or sub whatever, even though some of these, um, well, anyway. So uh, where are we in all this with respect to the Pleistocene, you ask? <laughs> yeah, which, where are we? We are in the Pleistocene, well, we're talking about, we're not in it now, but we're talking about the Pleistocene epoch in the Quaternary period of the Cenozoic era in the Phanerozoic eon. <laughs> that's, that's impressive. Isn't it? Cenozoic meaning new life and Phanerozoic meaning visible life. So Phanerozoic has a lot to do with fossils. So I was saying earlier that they're kind of like entering into a new ice age. Um, or that's kind of the beginnings of this the Pleistocene. Why I say that is because there have been other ice ages, which we could also say maybe, maybe more properly as ice houses. So we have like a greenhouse and ice house periods, you know? So there have been other ice house phases on Earth in the past, most notably in this cryogenian period. If you notice, I said period. So you get the quaternary period. There's a period <laughs> called the cryogenian, which was 720 to 625 million years ago. And some people who are familiar with a little bit of pop culture geology stuff, you know, the exciting bits, you know, might have heard the term snowball Earth. And so this is this is just one of the times where we had an ice house. But this one was significant in that some geologists think that the entire planet was covered in ice or, you know, at the surface. And that was also at the same time as um, another time there was a supercontinent, not just Pangaea. That was a different supercontinent, but this one was called Rodinia. And following this cryogenian period we kind of in the fossil record it looks like you start to see the advent of multicellular organisms like sponges and things like that so that's that's an interesting uh sequence anyway but one thing i want to say quickly though is that um when we talk about ice ages or ice houses we're talking about ice at the poles more or less covering the poles um so there can be ice in places but if it's not Covering the poles, I guess that's the big one. I'm sure someone would be like, no, or whatever. The other thing is I want to say is that, like, this stuff a lot, and the next, so this is part one of the Pleistocene. If you're, if you're bored out of your skull now, no. Um, but part mm -hmm. two. <laughs> Buckle up, because this is a multi-part long episode. <laughs> yeah, I made plans. I have goals. Um, <laughs> but the... Uh, Climate science isn't like at all like human origins or anything like that, like paleoanthropology, but it definitely has like enough change going on because it's such an active field and things are changing and you know, global, global warming and climate change and all that, that, you know, I don't, it's hard to keep up necessarily. And so I have my schooling and I, I had some serious, you know, climate oriented geologists trained me but you know it's it is what it is um so this is this is as much a data dump but i you know try my best i think a lot of the stuff that we talk about today is you know it's not like set in stone but it's not you know 
Oh, the uh, nice geology pun there. <laughs> I didn't even know I was doing it. All right. So, so are we? Is there enough ice on the poles today that we count as being in an ice house? Mm-hmm. Pretty much. I think we're still very much in an ice age. I don't think that's changed. Part of that is because of the setup hasn't changed, which we are going to talk about now. Yes. What a fucking segue. So there's kind of three, well, no, two <laughs> chunks that I want to talk about and going to talk about like plate tectonics a little bit and then uh, those effects. And then also, I guess, the ice sheets themselves and kind of how they form and all the interacting things that happen there. So let us begin. <laughs> let us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, lettuce and tomato. I guess, you know, with plate tectonics, you've got the plates on the planet are moving, you know. And so the continents, you know, the continental land masses are moving around. Essentially, you can think of since Pangaea, 250 million years ago, things have been spreading apart. And um, you have got, you know, a larger and larger Atlantic Ocean basin. And I guess to some extent, a smaller and smaller Pacific one. And the movement of these plates has had an effect on the distribution of, or the circulation, if you will, throughout the atmosphere and the ocean. And so the big one, I guess you could say, is the distribution of energy. Because sun comes and hits the planet more or less in the belly, you know, right at the equator more. And then from there, it, you know, any warmth gets distributed. But... I wouldn't necessarily say that it is itself like uh, a major, like, I mean, it's a major of, of in, utmost importance for, without question. But there's some other things that are also really important when it comes to climate and the climate that we have today and all that kind of business. But the you got the continents moving around and um, what ends up happening is you kind of have what I'm, I'm introducing something, I guess, called the gateway hypothesis. And I talked about it in the Summer Adipelian episode climate change one. But the idea is that, you know, some continental continents, what we would call continents today, have split apart from each other. And others are, you know, uh, coming or forming and connecting and all that kind of stuff. They're forming connections between each other, bridges, if you will, like Panama. And so when you have that happening, you have the alterations in how ocean, you know, temperature and density and you know, salinity and all that gets moved around in the ocean. But also, as you have, like, India ramming into Asia, you have, you know, quite a bit of uplift in the Andes as well. And so when you're lifting the land masses higher and higher, it does alter what the atmosphere can do as well. And so it changes circulation patterns with respect to, you know, where they were before to where they are going to go now because there's stuff in the way or what have you, barriers and corridors. But also there's like, you know, this also changes like how things, how there's like the, you know, how with circulation you can have like upwelling areas and um, a lot of that also has to do with the way that the continents and the oceans interact with respect to if you're really heating up the land and the warmth right at the surface of the 
the land is getting hot because it's absorbing the sun and then it when it absorbs it it radiates it off and you get the kind of heat waves if you're ever driving not in minnesota or north dakota these days but somewhere and you see the little waves coming off the road you know you got that heat coming off that's the absorbed uh energy that's being radiated and so that means that the air right there above the land is getting above the ground surface is getting warmer and because it's warmer has more energy it expands due to buoyancy it rises up and then the colder air is going to sink and come in and you know sort of fill that space and you get the convection and so you also can get uh winds going say off a continent onto the ocean and what that will have an effect of is pushing the surface water um and so as it pushes the water just like it wind pushes leaves on a tree or whatever um water below will come up and so you'll have upwelling and so you can have these various kinds of effects from uh the interacting interaction between the land and the air and the ocean and all that kind of stuff but then imagine that at the poles especially say with respect to something like greenland or major ice sheets over north america and of course antarctica you can get this pushing of the the water away from the the ocean, I mean from the landmass. And if this ice, it's going to be potentially quite cold. Any water that is being pushed away might be the warm surface water that gets hit by any sunlight, and it gets colder and colder and colder. And sea ice can form. And when you do that, when you form that sea ice, um, the densest part of uh, you know, water is at its densest just before it freezes. I think it's 39 degrees Celsius or, you know, something like I think Fahrenheit or whatever. And 32 is when it freezes. And then I think it's 38 or 39. Now, for some reason, I'm not remembering. But it's just before it and it's really dense. And what happens is when ice forms, it kicks out all the salt and all the other stuff. So it's just like, no, I want to be pure, more or less. And when it does that, of course, it's just thing of ice that forms on the surface and all that cold dense salty water drops down and what ends up happening is it just starts to create a conveyor if you will throughout the the planet and what the poles during especially these ice ages are looked upon as a sort of like climate engines that sort of drive the circulation of the ocean and then of course it has all these other interactions with the land and the atmosphere but that it's a kind of an good origin point for you know pushing like where do you begin if you're going to talk about when and where a circulation in a, in the planet starts that kind of thing so yeah anyway i just want to set that up a little bit and this you know you're distributing you're distributing energy and and all that kind of stuff um any wonderful uh or bored questions that you have Unfortunately not. Good. That means I'm it's working or something. Okay, so this is the data dump part, I guess, of it of it all. Yep, yep. Uh <laughs> which is, you know, you gotta do it sometimes, damn it. So now I then just wanna say, okay, so with all that you gotta get to that point though. And I've talked about, you know, gateway, the changing of the continents and and also sort of how you know, the poles can operate as sort of helping to generate, you know, and push circulation around in different ways. I mean, it was thought, at, and I don't know where this stands to this day, but so, some people think that 
um, there was very little that like, for instance, the, during the time of the dinosaurs, that the oceans were really well mixed, that there wasn't this stratification of temperature and density and all that kind of stuff. Like that it was just kind of one big old homogenous sort of mass. I don't know if that is correct or not, but it, you know, as in contrast to what we have today, where we have quite a bit of circulation in the, in the oceans. So kind of want to talk really briefly about a very kind of, it's a very important paper to primarily people in the earth sciences, but it's this paper by um, James Zakos and colleagues. And, you know, there's about four other authors and it was put out in 2001 and it's called trends, rhythms and aberrations in global climate 65 million years ago to the present. And uh, published in Science, which is one of the big ones, Science and Nature, the two big science journals um, that, you know, if you get one published in there, you've hit the big time and all that kind of stuff. You're in the majors. But um, here what they did was, and this is sort of something that sort of I kind of myself tangentially grace or, or, or scrape along or whatever. I don't fucking know what I'm trying to say. But... um. Uh, they took all these sediment cores and they gathered stable isotope uh, measurements from the sediment cores because there's these little organisms called foraminifera um, or foraminiferans. And uh, they incorporate, you know, oxygen and carbon in their little, sh- you know, shells. I think they're called tests i'm not they may not be actually called tests eh, it's been a while since i've thought about these things but they um they take in the isotopes more or less from the sea that they're living in and um in doing so isotopes like an oxygen 18 is an isotope it the the standard one where there's the same number of protons and neutrons is oxygen 16 but 18 you can imagine then has a few more neutrons in it couple more, and it's heavier. So just in general, just the physics of the problem is that it's more work to take up oxygen-18 than it is to take in oxygen-16. So they can look at the ratios of oxygen-16 to 18 and get a sense for where they are based on how much work it was and how much was available to do the work at the time that the organism was forming its shell or whatever. And so from here, you kind of get a bit kind of a proxy for... temperature changes and so these guys took all these cores sediment cores from the ocean seafloor and just created a composite of them and then they out of that composite of all these measurements they got over time they were able to uh you know create this big old curve that basically shows you like how temperature has changed more or less over the past 65 million years. And that was a big deal at the time. It was a big data deal. Um, and it's, I think that curve is still used in people's papers. They still like plot it up against other stuff, you know, cause it was just, you know, decades perhaps worth of data collection that had been going on and they found, you know, whatever it was. I don't know how they came up with the plan to do it. I don't know their story, but they did it. And so it's a big deal. But it, what's nice about it is that it allows them to then say, okay, at this point in time, these are the things that in other areas of the world we say are happening from other data or whatever. So they were able to kind of line everything up. And so, you know, you have, you know, with this gateway hypothesis, you have 
things like um, the connection between Australia and Antarctica, because they formed Gondwana, South America, Australia, Antarctica. They call it, there's like a, you could say it was like a Gondwana, and then Laurentia came together, and they formed Pangaea. But they separate when they when they finally do separate into those two halves, one in the north, one in the south. Then they've got you know we've got these subparts that we now call Australia, or Antarctica, and and South America. So at some point, eventually the you know, Australia breaks off from what's connection with what today is Antarctica. And that was around like 34 million years ago. And then around like 30 million years ago, you got the breaking up of uh, South America from Antarctica and that forms the Drake Passage. And now the Arctic is isolated and it has this sort of circumpolar, uh, uh, circul- you know, circulation pattern going on around it, um, which allows it to start to make things like the glaciers uh, somewhat partial or ephemeral or even full scale and permanent. Um, and then you start to then also, because you have all this tectonic movement, you've got the Tibetan plateau forming because India is the sub, you know, Asian subcontinents moving in and that's causing changes to the atmosphere. Finally, by around like 4 million or so years ago, you got this central American seaway, which we would, you know, say is where Panama is now forms. And that kind of closes things off and so you're changing circulation patterns, and that's sort of this one thing I wanted to make sure that these are the things that kind of happen uh, leading up to the final, like, okay, now you can have an ice age. It's not the only exa- you know reason for an ice age, but it's like, it's like all this setup. So when you said, well, can we kind of be out of an ice age now or not? And I'm thinking, well, that's going to be one thing having all these continents arranged the way they are, they'll have to move. Things will have to break up maybe a little bit to finally get out of it, you know, in terms of what we would define it as, you know, being, because even if we just all went away and carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases in the atmosphere got sucked up by the rocks and went and got into long-term storage or something like that, and and there's no humans or whatever, I, things would probably go back to this pattern that where we go from glacial to interglacial, which we'll talk about bit yeah what else do you want to talk about ireland anything else you're like anything else not this yeah i'm wondering what this how does this weigh on the michael cohen testimony (laughs) (laughs) current events no (laughs) um yeah there's i mean just uh, you know, to continue with the geological puns, just keep laying groundwork. <laughs> yes. Excellent. So those are sort of the timing of the changes in the plate tectonics and all that kind of stuff. Thanks, James Zachos. So now I'm going to move on to the ice sheets, because now we have we can form some ice sheets. Well, not that Antarctica may not have already had some, you know, millions of years prior. But... The big kind of change is where you start to develop ice sheets in the north. And a lot of that probably also has to do with the changes in the positions of the land, you know. Because if you ever looked at the a globe, you would see that the actual northernmost area is just water. You know, it's an ocean, the Arctic Ocean. And so there's lots of land around it. So in a way, maybe that also has a role to play with the delay in uh, but I don't know. I'm just speculating here, but maybe that has something to do with the delay in forming a, creating an ice age, you know, and 
whatnot, like there was able to be done with the Antarctica in the South Pole region. So essentially, the idea, though, is that there's a couple different factors with respect to uh, ice sheets forming on land. And one of those does have to do with the the amount of light you're going to get. So one of the things about being in the poles is that part of the year you're getting a ton of light and part of the year you're getting absolutely none. But also, you know, the temperature can be a lot cooler than, say, at the equator. And also, it because of those extremes in your seasons, you can have a lot more extremes, you know, say, to an extent. And, you know, you can be more sensitive, I think, to temperature change, you know, to changes that could have effect on temperature and things like that. Um, so one of the big ones, and this one's actually bigger than the continent or than the, the configuration of the continents and all the circulation, but it's, and I mentioned this, so we won't go over it in great, great detail, but the orbital cycles of the planet, you know, the earth, it does at least three things that it looks like have an effect on the amount of sun that does come into the and hit the planet and how much it absorbs and whatnot. So there's the one called the precession, which is you can think of it like a top when you spin the to- a toy little, you know, top and it's spinning and spinning. Eventually it's not going to spin fast forever. It's going to slow down. And as it slows down, you see kind of how the axis of the top kind of takes a much wider angle from maybe what it was like when you first started to spin it. But it also kind of has this sort of wobble to it. And that's this idea of precession. Some precession can go between a more intense kind of, or a more wider wobble and a more kind of less wide wobble, if you will. <laughs> then there's another one called ob- obliquity, which is just where the axis of the planet, you know, is tilted. You know, if it has a there is a plane of its orbit around the sun, then the angle of the axis of the planet with respect to the orbit itself, the plane of the orbit, can change, you know? And so that's obliquity. And then eccentricity is just sort of the shape of the orbit around the sun. So it can be kind of more egg-shaped, like oval and more circular, and it kind of changes uh and so the precession changes over like 23,000 years. It goes back and forth between its, um, you know, boundary, if you will, between one stage and the next. And then uh, obliquity changes in its axis tilt every, you know, 41,000 years. And eccentricity, there's one that's about 100,000 years and there's one that's like 413 or something like that. Uh, the 100,000-year one's kind of more important. Um, and so with that, you can alter how much sun comes into the planet and, um, you know, the kind of the way that the seasons work with respect to having all of these orbital cycles working together, they can create a, you know, uh, environment where your summers might be a little bit cooler than normal, say. And so any ice that does form... Uh, will stick around any kind of snow that falls it'll stay there's also a little bit of a feedback kind of in a local way between snow and the atmosphere and the sun is that the snow has got an something called an albedo all things have an albedo i guess you could say even black pitch black things have an albedo and that albedo is zero 
but the snow is going to be closer to one, you know? Uh, and so that's how much it reflects the light. And when you reflect a lot of light, you're not absorbing it. And so in not absorbing it, you're not then going to radiate much heat, which then won't come around to melting the snow and stuff like that. So if you have um, snow falling in some thickets or whatever with lots of sticky branches and things like that, the branches themselves will absorb whatever sunlight is coming in. And if not enough snow fell, they can have an effect on melting the snow around them, you know, just by radiating their own heat from the stuff they absorb uh, from the sun. So that's the kind of thing that uh, starts to build these ice sheets as where you just have cooler and cooler and cooler summers. Um, and that has a lot to do with how sunlight is hitting the planet. Um, with respect to how it's tilted, say, oh, tilted away from with the obliquity, tilted away from the sun even more, or, um, you know, the uh, the actual shape is, you know, not giving enough sunlight, you know, at certain times of the year. Maybe the wobble has something to do with it too. These, these are the things that kind of come together. Plus you got the continents. And so you can start to build up ice sheets and... They have, again, these kind of local and global effects. But eventually, when you start to build a huge ice sheet, it can have effects on the atmosphere in a major way, where if you had a huge thing of ice, like Antarctica, it's going to create this huge high-pressure zone, which will have effects on all the other pressure zones throughout the atmosphere. Because a high-pressure is just the idea is that, you know, you've got heavy air coming down on you so it's heavy it's hot and it's just like high pressure low pressure is it's like coming off it's you know so low pressure would be you know like the amazon and it's really you know the trees are releasing and respiring and everything's warm and everything's just kind of rising up and like you know just expanding and that's low pressure and you get a lot of storms and things because you're bringing up a lot of moisture into the atmosphere which then cools from its more gaseous state to a more liquid state and it falls and it falls as rain and all that kind of stuff so that's kind of the, that's sort of the, the, the main thing about the ice sheets in terms of their development and kind of the overall effects that they can have. And so these are things that are happening throughout the Pleistocene. And what happens is that they really get to go in around, say, 2 million to 1.8 million or whatever years ago. And they start moving in these cycles, though, which are kind of weird and hard to explain some people think it has a lot to do, well, for a while, they thought it had a lot to do with the orbital cycles. But one of the things about climate science is they keep coming up with hypotheses, which are great and creative and interesting. But a lot of them, just they just get knocked down. They're like, no, that's not working. That doesn't explain it. That, you know, like that kind of thing happens quite a bit in science in general. But definitely in climate science, it's definitely been going on for, you know, quite a while now, for decades. But it goes through these cycles. And the cycles in the beginning of this stage, well, the vast majority of it really, till about maybe 900,000 years ago or a million years ago. So from about 2 million to, to about a million or to a little bit longer, it goes through this cycle that correlates really well with obliquity, which is the 41,000 year cycle. And then it changes, which is, you know, for a long time, and I don't know exactly where it's at right now, but I know it's been quite a bit of a mystery. There's two mysteries. One is why go from glacier to interglacier period where you lose all the ice in the north for the most part. And then why 
this transition, this mid Pleistocene transition, as it's known, where you go from this obliquity dominated cycle of interglacial to glacial to this eccentricity dominated cycle of ice sheet growth development and decay, going from 41,000 year cycle to an 100,000 year cycle. That's interesting in and of itself, just because it's interesting. <laughs> but I have a few things that I would talk about with respect to that. But I don't want to. I I can talk about them in a second if you have anything you'd like to. Just you can just say this can be your okay. You've got like forty five okays today. Yeah. Okay. I want to keep talk about the next what you were gonna. Yeah. Okay. So the next thing then is about these mysteries. Talking about I've I've a better handle, and I think I think everybody has a better handle on the mid Pleistocene transition. One of the cool things about the glaciers is that when they first formed, they, f- they formed in a world where it, it and I, I'm kind of like begging the question here a little bit and giving you the answer more or less, but they formed in a world that doesn't, that, that isn't preserved anymore because the glaciers have since like eroded everything off of Canada practically. You know, if there were soils and even, I guess you could even say soft sedimentary rocks, the glaciers have completely gotten rid of them. And one of the ideas that has been proposed, and I don't remember the person who proposed it, but the idea is that you go in this 41,000-year cycle, the problem is that when the glaciers would form, they'd form on, on soils. And in doing so, forming on these soils, the there would be an exchange of moisture and temperatures and whatnot with the base of the actual glaciers. These are well, the ice sheets, really, they're continental ice sheets. And in doing so, the glaciers, as they built up, would actually just spread out. You know, they would just kind of, you know, go, you know, far and wide really quickly comparatively because they'd be riding on a kind of like going down a water slide or whatever. They just move much quicker. And so uh, this is the idea that eventually, though, this 41,000-year cycle of glacial, interglacial inter, uh, intervals happen enough that it, they finally, by you know a million years ago or 900,000 or whatever, had just eroded pretty much everything clean off that was to be eroded like a soil that was soft and pushable and all that kind of stuff. And once that happened, they just had, you know, bare rock, you know, to stick to. And they're, you know, it's cold. The rock's cold. It doesn't, you know, especially if you think of a granite, it's not absorbing a lot of water at all. You know, it's just this hard thing. And, you know, the ice is just going to not go anywhere. And, the it'll build up and you'll end up getting these massive kind of domes. I'm sure that's probably what's going on with Antarctica. And that's why it's so high in elevation that like the South pole is like very high. I don't know what the height is, but it's high. And uh, anyway, the, the idea is that um, once that happens, it just, it takes more than just an obliquity cycle to melt the glaciers because they're not going anywhere and they're building up really thick. And so the idea is that you have this transition from like a much more rapid pace to this, you know, glacial interglacial period to this other one. But that also means it's probably going to have an impact on 
you know, climate and ecosystems and all kinds of things when the ice just doesn't go away that easy. But what's weird about these cycles, especially with the 100,000 eccentricity, a 100,000 year eccentricity dominated cycle is that they form over a really long time. It's just like this like slow grow up to the point and then they hit this like maximum and then it's like, they just go. They're like, all the water goes away and you know, you get events like around where we are here or I am where you get the Missoula floods and there's apparently many Missoula floods that had occurred where the ice is melting and it just creates these huge floods and the ice, ice just melts much faster than it takes to form. The question is, well, then why does it melt at all? You know, and some would say it has to do with the, you know, you're coming around that point in the uh, orbital cycles where everything's just right to melt it or it's building up the melting. And once you get, water mixed in you you know it just becomes a cascade it's sort of a feed positive feedback loop it just accelerates more change there is a report that had come out maybe a few years ago and here i am this fucking don't even have that one i wanted to get it too i was like oh i don't forget to get it but there's so much to talk about but anyway that one <laughs> yeah i'm an idiot but that one was saying that there's a build-up potentially it looks like there's some evidence that there's a, a a lot of uh, greenhouse gases that are that are entered into the atmosphere from quite a bit of kind of concentrated mid-ocean ridge eruptions in these uh, spreading zones where you know in the ocean like the mid oceans there's the you know kind of areas that are called spreading zones or whatever they're partly related to what's moving the continents around. But anyway, so you have that idea that there's some increased volcanic activity releasing a lot of greenhouse gases sort of into the atmosphere. So there's some apparent evidence for that. I don't know what the duration of time over which these eruptions occur. That's just enough to get the thing to push it over and then you get this rapid melting phase. But I, as far as I can tell, it's not set in stone. <laughs> Again, it's not set in stone uh, at this point, anyway, but there's there's some ice sheet mysteries. <laughs> One thing I did want to mention really quick was that my brother has always made fun of me in a loving way, not like "oh, you're an idiot," but like he always calls the Pleistocene the Plindices or whatever, because I think it's just one of those words that you're like, I'm not going to memorize that. And then when you try and talk about it later, you're like, I don't know what that word was, but sort of like this, you know. Anyway, am I supposed to have got that joke in any way? No, no, not at all. It's a, just a loving brother. It's just a nonsense word. Yeah, plindices. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No meaning, just uh, random brain stuff. Mm. I like how much you're nerding out on this one. <laughs> I, you should have seen me doing the research. Jesus. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, it was, it's one of those things where it's like, well-guided research. You're like, ah, I know exactly where to go to get this information. You know, I don't think about it every single day, so I know I need to go and look it up. You know, but it was, uh, it was a joy. It's not over yet. <laughs> Everyone's like, no, why did I stay this long? <laughs> well, you stayed this long to talk about the big cats. Yes. <laughs> 
The stars are coming up, coming out now. That's right. <clears throat> um, yeah. So that was the that's sort of the physical environment, and that's sort of the stuff that was happening on Earth with respect to you know just physical chemical processes that are you know the varying scales. Now, when you say the Pleistocene, you have you have, and you're referring to some you know evolutionary psychology thing that you learned and you were like, yeah, they mentioned the Pleistocene. This is what we mean. Like a lot of this shit's happening and it's quite uh, impactful because one of the things that happens as well is once you get to that hundred thousand year stage, for sure, you start to like, you know, ice is super fucking heavy. I mean, it's like where you live right now, would have you would have been under a mile of ice for sure like it would have just been like i mean at the glacial maximum twenty thousand years ago and that's a would have amount. been and it feels like i am now <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's true that is so goddamn true the truth anyway but you can imagine how much weight that would be on barack i gotta get a fucking little editing sample snippet of Gimli saying that. Anyway. Uh, it all makes sense later. But, uh, but you know, it's pounding, it, you know, the rocks into dust, you know? And so as it like grinds over, and if you look at some of the, some rocks, if you go to like, especially like when, you know, part, Parts of the world that I lived in in the past, like Maine, you can see the kind of these like grooves in the granite. You know, they're literally just like you know rocks that are jammed into the ice, and the ice is moving, and it's just like dragging across. You know, rock against rock, and just the ice is as well as having an effect and creating lots of really, really, really fine dust that they call lurse. And when you throw that in the atmosphere. Um, and sure, it gets deposited elsewhere, but it still makes the atmosphere really dusty. And um, kind of in the same way that the um, Sahara, like the Sahara has these huge dust storms that'll go up into the atmosphere and then just west of the Sahara in Africa, it'll drop all that sediment into the surface of the Atlantic. And because there's a ton of like other things besides just silicon. It's like iron and manganese and all that kind of stuff falling into this surface of the ocean. You'll get these huge algal plumes. So it's the same kind of idea, but it's coming from this grinding from the ice sheets. But also the temperature of the ocean at the surface of the ocean is is cooler. And you're not having the same kind of effects where like here in the Pacific Northwest or if you live in Ireland or the Br British Isles, you're getting all this moisture coming off the ocean from the, you know, the atmospheric circulation patterns, picking up all the moisture and the warmth in that, you know, in, in, in that transaction and dumping it onto the land. And so that's why these areas are very green and, you know, some of them are considered temperate rainforests and whatnot um but during the ice age a lot of that moisture and water is just it's caught up in ice it's like that's where it's being stored so you don't have that as well you know um uh 
other things I could mention is that, you know, though you lose land in the north, you know, especially also in Asia and Europe, but North America had really significant ice sheets um, that went all the way down past, you know, all the way into like Iowa and shit. Um, you know, you, you know, you get, you, you lose ground that way, but you gain it with the water of the, you know, the sea level being much lower because it's all now in ice comparatively. And then if you look on like bathymetric maps where in my area, you'll see, and I'm sure it's this way in many areas, see these like underwater canyons that would have been, you know, just canyons on land. Like, and these are just like at the, where the Columbia river spills out into the Pacific, just West of that, there's these canyons and stuff. And you can imagine that with the sea level being much further down or, you know, lower, you'll have this exposure of so much more land. So anyway, uh, you know, they dredge up all the time because you know, these land bridges form uh, like Beringia between Alaska and Siberia and um, between, say, uh, the continental Europe and um Great Britain and, and even into, uh, you know, um, Scandinavia, the area of the North Sea. You know, these are just land at one point because the, all the water was in the ice. The sea level was much lower. So they dredge up all the time, like so many fossils of mammoths and stuff like that from the sea floor because that was just ground at one point. So there's all of that. Um, and then the other thing to mention is that, weirdly enough, the environment like say in north like we're in continental u.s the ice sheet front was like way down so it was you know by the it was past the glacier the the great lakes you know and the area essentially right in front of it you know would have you know been like a tundra cold super cold tundra environment with all the kinds of kinds of you know woolly mammoths and you know, really hairy horses and camels and things like that. But also, you know, what it would have done was sandwich in it between the glacier front and the tropics, all of this, like all these trees and animals and all that. So the environments could be in some areas a lot more squished, you know? So there's a lot of relationships that happened back then, ecological ones that don't happen now because while well, you're up in Ontario, some plant and some squirrel or whatever, and then the other one's down in Mexico or whatever. So there's like a lot of, you know, stuff going on like that. So there's a lot of interesting discoveries that have happened over the over time when people look at actual um sedimentary deposits from that time period and it has fossils in it, you're like, hey, these two things are you know, they still live, they're not extinct, and they're totally not associated with each other at all until like you looked at the stratigraphic uh, deposits and you're like, wait a minute. So anyway, that's cool. But uh, <laughs> moving in further into the ecosystems, there's essentially, because I don't know how much time we have and I don't really know if I want to like hammer it over the head too much since we've both talked about, we want you, you, you're fine with one example I'm not fine with one example, but I don't like too many examples. So they're just going to like, you know, I'm going to give you two examples of like essentially. Start, you can start there. We've got lots of time. Well, and since we're not worried about time, right? Anymore. That's right. 
<laughs> so I've talked about these sort of land bridges between, say, continental Europe and, you know, uh, Great Britain and Scandinavia, and then also between Alaska and Siberia. Um, there was also land bridges between Australia and, you know, uh, islands just north in, you know, the, the you know, what is that region? Why can't I remember what it's called? I want to say the Malay Archipelago. And of course, you know, Malaysia itself was much bigger. And so things were a lot more connected in that way as well. And so, uh, you know, this allowed for migrations to occur at various times throughout the Pleistocene when ice would form on the northern continents and, you know, uh, the sea level would drop. And so there's a lot of, not only do we talk about, you know, this idea that, hey, these squirrel nut zippers were intermingling, but one's in Mexico and one's in Canada now or whatever. You also get different kinds of relationships between, you know, continents as well, kind of intermingling because of the opportunities that are provided by these um, land masses that are sort of suddenly available to run around in. And so, um, and the migrations will become important for the next episode when we talk about humans. <clears throat> so migration clearly though is, is a big part of a lot of the changes that occur because you have essentially naturally invasive species interacting with others. And, you know, the biggest one probably was what's called the great American interchange between South America and North America when the Panama Isthmus formed closing off the Central American Seaway, and you end up getting a lot of North American animals moving south, and some, but not a lot, but some South American and mammals in particular, but plants and animals and all that, moving north. We tend to think of the interchange, though, in terms of mammals, and I'm not exactly sure why. Because it's not like they don't have pollen or other kinds of organisms to access, you know, it's not like there's not paleobotanical, you know, samples that are available to talk about, but mammals are charismatic, I guess. And some of them are really weird, you know, and so that's also interesting in and of itself. Weird for mammals. <laughs> uh, I laughed alone on that one. <laughs> uh, it's sad. Play that violin. So one of the things then is we talk a lot about these various changes that occur and, you know, it kind of becomes quite wild. So when I talk about, say, North America, you know, ooh, North America having... <laughs> <laughs> My heater's acting up now. What was that? That was the furnace getting oh. pissed off. Oh, shit. I hope you don't explode and die while I... While I continue to talk about this stuff. Uh, anyway. So, the, um, the, the thing about, you know, North America that I think a lot of people don't realize is that, because probably they don't care, but whenever I mention it at parties, which I don't do very mm -hmm. often because you know why because you're not at parties very often well that's true but also people don't give a shit uh or they get really skeptical they're like what but like you know a lot of uh horse blow our minds all right 
Horses, camels, puppy dogs. Much of their evolution happened in North America and up until, geologically no. speaking, recently. Yes. No indeed. way. Indeed. And so <laughs> the, the, you know, when we think about camels, we don't think about, um, number one, we don't think about them being, you know, anywhere but, for the most part, probably just like the Middle East and probably Northern Africa or whatever. But also, we don't tend to think of that, even though there's the Bactrian two-hump camel in Mongolia and stuff. Um, but I don't know if people think about them as much. I, I don't know. We'll see. I'll take. I'll do a survey one day. Um, do you think about Bactrian camels? <laughs> no, I don't think about the other ones either. So, but uh, <laughs> not only do people probably think about camels, they think about Africa and the Middle East and deserts and things like that. They also don't think about camels, for the most part, looking throughout much of their evolutionary history like llamas. You know, essentially, that's what llamas, you know, are. They're not like this different thing. They they are just camels. And so it doesn't, I mean, I'm sure there's some mammalogists who probably would be like, I question that, but I, I don't know how many would. Essentially, you can look at them as they're basically, they have, that's what they are. The Wanakos and all the other um, South American type of camels. The what? Camels. Did you say it in a word? Wadico or something? Guanaco, I think that's what they are. Or Guanaco, maybe some people say Guanaco. You I've say never heard that word before. Guacamole, I say guacamole. <laughs> um... Yeah, guanacos. They're like wild llamas or camels. <laughs> yeah, guanaco. It looks looks like some kind of a llama, but it's camel, and llamas are camels, or whatever. We've stayed too long on this part. But a lot of these organisms, these, you know, horses and camels and whatnot, have made their way into Eurasia and Africa, you know, think of zebras and even there's, uh, that's Ecus. So, uh, um, you know, what all the, I think living horses, uh, donkeys and mules and zebras and all of those are all part of Ecus, the genus, like we are homo or whatever. Um, and it's because they share enough characteristics that people are like, yeah, hey, let's lump them together. And they are able to recreate evolutionary histories using phylogenetics. But also, um, you know, there's stuff coming into North America. So we have bison, and they're, you know, they're, the vast majority of their evolutionary history took, takes place in Eurasia. Same with a lot of these big cats. So how else did we get jaguars or, um, you know, uh, yeah, I won't even get into the other ones, but... Yeah, so there's that. But how else did Eurasia get wolves? So these kinds of inter interchange, you know, interactions and interchanges, as they're also called, have big impacts on the ecosystems. And one of the things they talked about how is how a lot of like the hyenas used to be all over the place, except for the Americas. And one of the reasons that some people think that may be the case is because we had so many kind of, you know, caniform animals in the form of canids, dogs, 
that there's just no there's nothing for them to do here because we already had essentially in conversion evolutionary terms the whatever it is that the hyenas offered it that was already covered here so they just there was no way to break in except in the pliocene just prior to the pleistocene there was a one hyena apparently that broke through and it was like a sprinting animal so we didn't just like literally one guy is this one dude they're like hey there goes chasmos (laughs) anyway um that's another inside joke that only i get (laughs) so there's that so there's a lot of interchanges but we also had and this one's always kind of i don't know why i've always been enamored by it um lions we had like there were (laughs) in north america there was fucking lions not mountain lions lions like just killing things um and they were big uh, this particular you know sub lineage or whatever of lion was bigger than any other and maybe one of the biggest cats to have ever lived there was one in south america that was a saber-toothed cat that was probably even bigger but that's the other thing i want to talk about the size of these animals they're just huge, some of them. You know, there were beavers the size of black bears and great variety of different types of... I'm going to throw the word out there. You're just going to have to deal because they're not all elephants, but proboscideans. You know, there were a whole bunch. There was mam- um, mastodons. Of course, you had a couple of different kinds of mammoths. There was a uh, gomphothere, you know, like... And so there are all these various kinds of animals that very recently, and this is something that's often said by those who have thought about it, it's all very recent that these things were here and they're not. We won't talk about the extinction until next time, but there was just a ton of organisms. There was also something that we've given the common name to, even though it doesn't, it's extinct, that's been called the giant short-faced bear. And yeah, some of the mythology probably surrounding it is more than it probably did i don't know but it was a very large bear whose limb proportions have made people think that it was the kind of bear that could just run really fast and it was huge and probably absolutely terrifying and then then in addition to all of that there was there was uh the they're called mascherodonts or dagger tooth cats, which there's at least two different kinds. There's a saber tooth cat, which most famously in North America is Smilodon, that genus. And the one in the United States, I think the the greatest number of fossils that we have, if you go to Rancho La Brea in Los Angeles, the tar pits, you'll see a lot of Smilodon fatalis. So you had the saber tooth cats, but there was also a lineage that are called the dirk-toothed cats, and that was a lineage called Homotherium. Homotherium serum is in North America, uh, the last glacial maximum. There's just all of these rather remarkable animals. Plus, there was an even larger wolf called the dire wolf. Maybe some people are familiar with dire wolf from like uh, Game of Thrones or whatever. I don't know how much bigger it was than regular timber wolves, but likely if there was an isolation between the different populations or whatever, that, you know, kind of like when there's no wolves, coyotes get a little bit bigger. You wonder if 
when there was no more dire wolves, timber wolves or whatever got a little bit bigger, you know? Um, so there's, or gray wolves as they're probably better known, but gray wolves certainly exist in Eurasia and there were no dire wolves in Eurasia as far as the fossil record is concerned. Um, and then there was a, what is often lovingly called a cheetah-like cat, Myrcinonyx. But the problem with the Myrcinonyx is that even though its limb proportions look like a cheetah, it still had retractable claws, which cheetahs don't. They have a paw like your dog does because they run so fast. There's no point in having retractable claws. You know, they might as well just have claws that just stay out, you know. And uh, the but Myrcinonyx also lived in all these various environments, so it's kind of hard to say that they were just their whole specialty was hunting uh, fast animals like the pronghorn antelope, uh, which is I think the fastest land mammal outside of the cheetah itself. So people would say, well, why are they so fast? You know, and it's it was introduced the idea that well maybe it's because you know, there was something fast chasing them. But it's hard to say at the moment. Um, but you just had this huge suite of, of predator guild. And, of course, then later the grizzly bears came along as well. Um, you had mountain lions as well as jaguars. Certainly there were coyotes running around too. And, I mean, it's insane how many different kinds. You wonder, like, what the population sizes could have actually been since there's such a great diversity of lineages and then of course there's a great diversity like i've already kind of mentioned along with your moose and your you know uh white tail deer or mule deer you had and your pronghorns you had like smaller pronghorns there were a couple of different other kinds of deer uh there was something called a stag moose that was huge um then of course you had all these horses and camels huge camels and then these things called giant ground sloths which would have been just totally strange looking i kind of think if you ever saw that movie the dark crystal i wonder if they ever like planned the look of those good guys in the dark crystal that the little puppet elf guy hangs out with i don't they have skexies i remember the bad guy's name skexies i don't remember the good guy's name a thousand years ago the crystal cracked and here, far from the castle, the race of mystics came to live in a dream of peace. Their ways were the gentle ways of natural wizards. Yet now there are only ten, a dying race, numbly rehearsing the ancient ways in a blur of forgetfulness. But today, the ritual gives no comfort. Today, the wisest of the mystics lies dying. Today, they summon the one who must save them. But anyway, they kind of look like that. They're just like, 
you know, just these huge lumbering things that are that are sloths. You know, they're not. Well, there's got to be something for all these predators to eat. I guess. <laughs> but the um, the size of some of these animals, even though the predators were huge, the size of the prey. So sometimes what happens is that the prey just gets so big that there's kind of once they reach adulthood, until they get a disease or their senescence takes over or whatever, they're kind of untouchable, you know, unless they trip and break their leg or something or step in a tar pit and can't get out. So it's amazing to me that so many lineages just took this path, you know, and that, you know, I don't know, if you were walking around North America back then, you'd be like, no thanks. Take me back to the mall, to Barnes and Noble, where it's safe. It's a hard place to be a caveman. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, that's North America. And interestingly enough, I was talking about this diversity and I mentioned, I did look up a paper. I didn't actually look it up because I, I have it. <laughs> so I didn't really look it up, but, um, it, and I mentioned it a little bit ago and I was like, Oh, it came out recently. It totally came out like five years ago. So, but that's recent enough for this 40 year old. Um, and it's by Tyler Kartzanel, if I'm saying that name correctly, at all. And there's a shit ton of authors. Yeah, damn wolf packs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they're talking about niche partitioning and the sort of African large mammalian herbivores. And one of the things about Africa is that it's basically somewhat what things were like all over the world back 20,000 years ago. And earlier, you know, throughout much of the Cenozoic, um, which is time well before as well than Pleistocene. And so you have uh, these guys that were looking at the poop of a number of um, large mammalian herbivores. Um, and I'm trying to remember what the park was. It was at a particular park. <laughs> and um, they were also looking at this taking a survey of the plants and they kind of did a, you know, they use the genetics to match things up between what you got in the poop and what you got, you know, elsewhere out in the wild, out growing off the roots. So when they did that, what they found was that there's these like plant or for, you know, sweets that these large mammalian herbivores all kind of specialize in. So it's like, okay, this one eats a lot more grass, like the, the zebras. They eat more grass, and they don't eat a lot of this, and they don't eat a lot of that, but they eat a little bit of this. So it's this, like, special... It's like, you know, if you got a deck of cards and you, you got a hand, and your hand has this particular thing. It's not like anyone else's hand or whatever. It's your hand, and it's kind of like that. you got this set, you know, this hand of cards. You know, each of the lineages essentially does that, and that's how they're able to kind of partition themselves out. And then, of course, also their adaptations reflect this, you know, relationship that they have with plants. So horses need teeth that are going to be able to handle the intense amount of abrasion that happens with the grasses they're eating. Because the grasses, when they're, you know, taking stuff up into their xylem and phloem, they take up a lot of silica. So that's like chewing on sand, you, you know, and that's going to wear your teeth out Um pretty quickly and actually one of the things they notice when they look at people back in the in the Pleistocene for instance they try and figure out well what were they eating one of the ways they can kind of get a sense for what people were eating 
um, is if they have like their teeth have like, you know, scratches and abrasions and, you know, nicks in them and stuff like that. That's one indication that they were eating a lot of mollusks and seashells because they've got a lot of sand and grit and they try and, you know, deal with that and they make a pearl or whatever. But that, you know, is one of the things that paleoanthropologists and archaeologists do. Um, so anyway, um, so there's that kind of thing going on and I'm guessing to an extent that probably was also happening in the Pleistocene. But what's weird is that what happens when, you know, you're sandwiching between the glacier, the front edge, leading edge of the glacier and the tropics, you know, and you're squishing, you know, you got the little squirrel nut zippers that today live in Canada and the squirrel nut zippers that live in Mexico, but now they're living together, but so is everybody else, you know, the strategy. All right, wait, hang on. Point of order, what the hell is the squirrel nut zipper? I thought it was a ska band from the 90s or whatever. Well, I'm just... You know what I'm thinking of when I say that? I'm thinking of that darn cartoon called Ice Age, and you've got that crazy whacked-out squirrel who's yeah. constantly chasing after the nut. And that's just kind of... Yeah, I mean, I it's the it's the band that... Uh, I'm not. It's not an oh, actual okay. band. <laughs> well, I let it go the first time you said it. Because I thought that might be it. But now you started using it again and again, and I began to think it was a real thing. All right. Just color. Mm-hmm. Color for you people. This is the boring part. <laughs> the next one, I can just say monotone. Everyone would be like, riveted. Tell me more about myself. Joking. Yeah, that's the one that every, that's the one people want to hear. Part two. Yeah, that's why you do this one first. Listen, people, I'm not selling you the steak. I'm selling you the sizzle. Well, no, giving you the steak first. Sorry. All right, sizzle's gone. Sizzle comes later. Anyway, so I'm wondering if, I don't know what happens then with these animals, but they still are able to find a way to look at this same kind of thing that this paper by Tyler Cartzenel that was published in 2015. Um, they still are able to do that, but they look at the um, isotope composition of the teeth. Shit, these isotopes have cropped up a number of times. And it's a lot of the same kind of thing, like what you eat, what you know, you are what you eat kind of thing. And so from the teeth, they can look at the... Uh, carbon compos- carbon isotope composition of the teeth and match that up with the kinds of plants that produce the varying degrees of, um, you know, the carbon isotope ratios that, you know, occur out there today. So there's a lot of present is the key to the past type stuff going on. You know, and then, of course, the predators eat the prey. And so the predators then get that same kind of ratio and so you can kind of match it up like, okay, you can have the chain like, okay, this is a horse and it looks like it ate grass based on its carbon isotope signature. And this, you know, you know, lion looks like it ate the horse because its carbon isotope ratio matches up from its teeth. And so they're able to do that. So it, as far as I can tell, that still seemed to happen. But what happens when everything got sandwiched is that it's like things got partitioned. So instead of having massive grasslands and massive forests like we have in North America today, 
you would just have like clumps of grassland with clumps of forests and the trees would be all like, Hey, you know, I'm hanging out with you this time. And it wouldn't have been the normal, like, well, we're all just evergreen forests or, you know, we're all just, you know, elms and oaks and stuff like that together in a deciduous forest or the jungle and, you know, that kind of thing. It would, it would have been a lot more sandwiched apparently. So anyway, so that's North America. But speaking of Africa, Do, do you have any questions before it. I uh, move on to this next example, which is extremely important? I believe you. <laughs> I saved it for last. Yes. Well, I mean, I saved it for... The latter of these examples, yeah. I saved it for the segue qualities for, you know... You know, you and I are both Star Trek Next Generation fans. They would always have, like, the too big continued <laughs> at the end of one season where they're like, oh, the damn Cardassians or whatever. Um, and then they begin it the next season. But we're in the Plendices. This is different. So, <laughs> <clears throat> so Africa is interesting, like I said before, because... Pretty much like I you know, was saying, you know, when you think about the Serengeti or any of the savannas in Africa, um, that's kind of the idea of what was going on uh, throughout the whole entire planet. Europe, Asia, Australia, you know, North America, South America, there were these big mammals pretty much dominating the landscape. And when I mean dominating the landscape, um, a bunch of elephants can just push down a whole shit ton of trees just because they want to and because they do and because that's what they you know why not they're bored <clears throat> and then you've pretty much got no forest so they can have a huge impact and that's going to have an impact on how the soils develop you know and it's going to have an impact on who else can come in and what their patterns of behavior are and so it's like a you know large mammals can have a top-down effect all the way down even to say what's happening in the soils and but Africa still has all of these things. Well, they're they're hanging on. Um, I don't know how, you know, everybody. So if you just like follow the news, they're like, this African rhino is God, you know. And then, you know, one of the big issues with these large ones is that their rates of reproduction, like how fast they turn over a new generation is really slow compared to a bunch of little voles and small guys. And there were some small mammals that went extinct, but uh, the vast majority did not. And also the vast majority of, or animals that seem to like hide out in the deep woods seem to also not go extinct. So there's a little bit of a size and exposure and a lack of being able to turn over your population that also is a factor here. But again, we'll talk about that in part two. So there's a lot of turnover from the Pliocene to the Pleistocene in Africa. And what's interesting about it, though, is that for a while there was this sort of overlap between, you know, the old guard and the new guard. So Africa got a influx of, um, you know, migration just like North America did. And... um you know, and it came from, you know, Eurasia. So lions and tigers, which I 
still think are you know clo- closely related and they share a common ancestry with each other more so than they do with any other like big cat in their particular genera, which is Panthera. Um, you know, lions came in probably from you know Eurasia because they had quite a bit of history in Eurasia as well. And then, um, and there's still some in India. And there was some even all the way up into Greek times, apparently, in Greece. So the, um, the thing that's happening in, in Africa is that you have, Africa is funny because, you know, the, I don't know, you probably know this, I have no idea. Um, but the, we have these sort of projections of the planet that we put on to, to be able to cover a globe and so if you were to take that off and look at it there's different kinds of ways that people create these little coordinate systems of projections of earth and its continents and oceans and how they're related to each other but if you were to pull peel that off what often happens the size of the pole areas looks exaggerated in its size and the size of the equator is well from you know, Africa to South America, you can trust that relative size difference comparatively. So oftentimes Greenland looks like it's the size of Africa when really it's kind of really much smaller. I would, I wouldn't say, uh, I wouldn't even know how to say how, what the size of it really is. So like you have like this warping, if you will, of how we see things when we look at maps and so then it kind of, if you're not thinking about it, you don't realize that Africa is fucking huge and a lot is going on in Africa, you know, and over time, a lot has happened in Africa. So it's kind of interesting from one standpoint, when you talk about the faunas and floras of Africa, because there was this interesting amount of overlap that occurred for a little while. And then whatever you would say, the modern faunas and floras are took over. And um, a lot of that probably has to do with just the furthering of the climate change as you develop these massive ice sheets and the cycles in the the north. But this, you know, I was talking to you about um, the, um, what do you call it, the saber-toothed cats, the Smilodon and all that, Rancho La Brea, Tar Pits. There was, you know, also Homotherium, serum which is a dirk tooth cat so these these are these dagger teeth cats or whatever and they've got these big amazing teeth that stick down from the upper jaw the upper canines grow and grow and grow and um the thing about them was that they were sticking around for a little while there and there were at least three in africa um throughout this early phase if you will of the pleistocene (laughs) And one of the things that's often shown is like early humans being eaten by one of these kind of cats, but like in leopard style, you know, and what these kinds of animals say with respect to their morphology is that for one thing, when you look at the saber teeth, they're kind of fragile. They're not teeth that you would just chunk into anything anywhere because they could break. And if they break, well, as you can imagine, they've invested quite a bit of their development and energy into growing these big-ass teeth, that they must be important to them. And without them, who knows how exactly they make a living. Some people have seen some saber-toothed cats like Smilodon 
and have seen wounds healed. Wounds that probably would have been bad for business, but they seem to have healed, which suggests potentially that they were able to eat, even though the kind of injury does not suggest they could have got caught the food themselves. So maybe there was a sociality to some of these cats, not all, but some. And so, but what, some of these cats are kind of how you might break it down is you have cats that are leopard size and cats that are lion size and the home ethereum dirk tooth cats. It looks like were you know, definitely they were lion size, but they also had sort of a build like, like a lion. So they were kind of, proportional and kind of longerish limbs and they look like they could they could run like out in an open area and one of the things that they found in texas is a whole bunch of home ethereum fossils that seems to suggest that there might have been some kind of social living situation and with them a ton of baby mammoth fossils and so it looks like these home ethereum uh populations in this area of Texas, for instance, were social and they hunted little baby mammoths and that was how they made a living on the open plain or whatever of Texas during, you know, the past in the Pleistocene. And so maybe something like that was also happening for Homotherium in Africa. And so you also have this introduction though of both lions and leopards. <clears throat> and of course you also have hyenas running around as the caniforms. And uh, no bears, really. There's maybe one bear, but it's inconsequential, and it's not in the Pleistocene. But um, what the leopard-sized ones suggest is that well, what they require, based on their morphology, is they weren't like long-distance runners. You know, the limb length, everything seems to suggest, a, you know, short sprint, ambush-style get the animal, use your huge, thick, strong limbs to hold the thing down, and then with your teeth, just gouge it and, you know, some soft spot and just let it bleed to death. And this kind of makes sense. There's This sort of strategy does work, but you need cover. So what it suggests is that even though we have this idea of in the Pleistocene and everything opened up and we had this big open plains, it suggests that it probably wasn't exactly that way yet you know like it can be today and um that allowed these saber tooth you know dirk tooth type cats to make a living in africa still but that eventually they do go extinct around i don't know 1.5 million or whatever it is and then the homotherium a little bit later than that and the thinking is that things really did start to open up even more around that time and it is kind of prior to this mid-Pleistocene transition, so I don't know exactly what's going on. But one of the things I've learned about researching the climate of Africa is that what happens in one part of Africa is not necessarily going to be echoed or whatever in another part. Sometimes, like, Africa as a climate, you know, the climate of Africa, or climates, I guess, seem to have minds of their own, kind of like, you know, the way... Um, the sort of distributed nervous system of a uh, uh, octopus, you know, like its arms can be like looking at something, even though you, people who observe octopus in the oceans note that the octopus, like based on its eyes and the kind of central part seems to like be asleep. You know? <laughs> and like in one tentacle is like, what's this over here? You know, like they seem to have their own autonomy to a degree. And I kind of think that's sort of how I've been able to gather 
my understanding of the of you know climate and climate change, whether it's long term or short term in Africa, seems to be just kind of all over the place. Every once in a while, it's like in unison, everything happens together. But it, this might have been one of those things where it just couldn't be held back, and boom, you just have this huge change. And the organisms that we have, or the mammals and the plants and the arrangements that we have today, were the ones that were able to make the right adjustments or were already well adapted to that type of environment anyway, and it just tipped in their favor, and then they inherited you know, Africa. And in so many words, you know, so did we. And so that's kind of another part that we'll talk about uh, next time, you know, when we're talking about, I guess, biology's next big leap is kind of how I would word it. Or you could call it the exciting part. But there's like a, it's a bit of an oncoming harvest that is going on and culling, if you will. It's kind of a weird, kind of a weird time in a way. Cause, cause we just make things strange all of a sudden. And, uh, it will, I think it'll be fun to talk about cause it's confusing as fuck. Yeah. Those are usually fun. Well, I mean, just to give you a taste, I mean, it's like, I don't know if any one paleoanthropologist agrees with another one. Like it's so, like it's the it's the most volatile science I have encountered. Like it just shit changes so fast. I have a th- hypothesis as to why that might be the case, but it's just like damn. Like in any like you can't like get comfortable with one thing about our past in terms of the paleontology of it. Like it's so like okay, you know, and we keep keep coming up with you know more excavations and spelunking, you know, cave dives and more stuff that we learn. It just doesn't, whatever. It's almost like we should like one of the rare times where I'd say, you know, let's not speculate for like another hundred years, you know, like let's just collect the information Mm -hmm. and then just deal with it later. And you and I won't be alive, but damn, it's like, it's so tempting, I think, for a lot of people to just jump to some kind of interesting, fun way of telling the story. But Africa itself, like I just described, its climate seeming like some kind of distributed nervous system of an octopus. It doesn't like it's hard to say, oh, yes. And then anyway, there's a, those are the sort of the few changes. There are lots of different kinds of organisms. Of course, you have the development of giraffes. The big African elephants that we have today, Loxodonta is the genera. There's two. There's one that's a forest one, and then there's the big open plains one. They're actually recent inheritors. Well, the Loxodonta in the plains is a recent inheritor of the Serengeti. It's kind of like a newcomer. There was one throughout much of the Pleistocene, and I don't. I think it's just the same genera as the Asian elephant. Elephus is the genera. That one just dominated forever in the open, you know, so I, I, in the open environments or whatever. So I don't know what it was that caused them to go extinct. It's like, it's bizarre because a lot of the things that people talk about as to why they might, a lot of these organisms don't go extinct is because of exposure to humans and humans to them, you know? And so it was just, it's, you know, 
it's like growing up with your pets, you know, you're not, it's nothing weird, you know, it's just, oh yeah, it's just a dog, you know, or whatever. So there isn't that same bloodlust, you know, or easy pickings even, you know, they know your behaviors and habits and they're like, yeah, we've been evolving next to you for quite a while. We know what you're, you, you as soon as we start seeing the flint and you start making some fire, we're out, you know, or I don't know, <laughs> you know, it's just like, they're just wary of humans or something, but, um, wise yep but that's yeah i don't know if this went well or if this what i have no idea but i will say that you know the pleistocene when fucking steven pinker goes oh back in the pleistocene or somebody that's when humans this is what they're talking about and they probably don't know jack shit about it they just know to say the pleistocene because they read it somewhere but I think it's kind of, it's a really, it is an important period. Paleoanthropologists will know everything about this, I'm pretty sure, uh, just because it's their job. And they're usually out there like paleontologists. That's basically what they are. They're just paleontologists uh, focused on human remains rather than something else. Somebody else could focus on giraffes, you know, or whatever. But, you know, it's human, so it gets a press ticket. Yeah. So you've reached the end of uh, part one? I have. Is that what you were saying? Okay. Data jump over for this part. Yeah. I mean, I could, yeah. There's so many little things. I didn't know how to thread them together, like the coevolution and stuff like that. But. Well, that's cool. I talked, There's a whole nother part. Well. Though it's going to swing a bit more toward the humans, I guess. Or the proto-humans. All of it. It's going to swing all the way. And this one, I hope, will be a little more challenging and provide you a little more space to be like, wait a minute or whatever, because especially I think when it comes to the Hamanina, our particular lineage, uh, man, it's just weird. And then we can talk about the mass extinctions and we'll talk about the Holocene a little bit and the Anthropocene. Then we'll shed a tear. We'll find the end of the world then pretty soon. Or the end of humanity, life, as we know it. If we would be so lucky. Probably not. It's just going to keep going. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but yeah, I mean... Well, I look forward to it. Well, you're not looking backwards to... No, absolutely. We'll do it we'll Look then. forward to looking back with you again next time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Back or to the future past, something. <laughs>